0: Section 18 of The Art of Letters This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The Art of Letters by Robert Lynd. Section 11. Aspects of Shelley. Part 2 the experimentalist mr buxton foreman has an original way of recommending books to our notice in an introduction to medwin's life of percy Bysshe shelley he begins by frankly telling us that it is a bad book and that the only point of controversy in regard to it is as to the kind of bad book it is last century he declares produced a plethora of bad books that were valuable and of fairly good books with no lasting value medwin's distinction is that he left two bad books which were and still are valuable but whether the byron conversations and the life of shelley should be called the two most valuable bad books of the century or the two worst valuable books of the century is a hard point in casuistry medwin we may admit even if he was not the perfect idiot he has been called would have been a dull fellow enough if he had never met shelley or byron but he did meet them and as a result he will live to all eternity or near it a little gilded by their rays he was not mr foreman contends the original of the man who saw shelley plain in browning's lyric none the less he is precisely that man in the imaginations of most of us a relative of shelley a school friend an intimate of the last years in italy even though we know him to have been one of those men who cannot help lying because they are so stupid he still fascinates us as a treasury of sidelights on one of the loveliest and most flashing lives in the history of english literature shelley is often presented to us as a kind of creature from fairyland continually wounded in a struggle with the despotic realities of earth here and in his poetry however we see him rather as the herald of the age of science he was a born experimentalist he experimented not only in chemistry but in life and in politics at school he and his solar microscope were inseparable ardently interested in chemistry he once we are told borrowed a book on the subject from medwin's father but his own father sent it back with a note saying i have returned the book on chemistry As it is a forbidden thing at Eton. During his life at University College, Oxford, his delight in chemical experiments continued. His chemical operations seemed to an unskillful observer to premise nothing but disasters. He had blown himself up at Eton. He had inadvertently swallowed some mineral poison, which he declared had seriously injured his health, and from the effects of which he should never recover. His hands, his clothes, his books, and his furniture were stained and covered by medical acids. More than one hole in the carpet could elucidate the ultimate phenomena of combustion, especially in the middle of the room, where the floor had also been burnt by his mixing ether or some other fluid in a crucible, and the honourable wound was speedily enlarged by rents, for the philosopher, as he hastily crossed the room in pursuit of truth, was frequently caught in it by the foot the same eagerness of discovery is shown in his passion for kite-flying as a boy he was fond of flying kites and at field place made an electrical one an idea borrowed from franklin in order to draw lightning from the clouds fire from heaven like a new prometheus and his generous dream of bringing science to the service of humanity is revealed in his reflection what a comfort it would be to the poor at all times and especially in winter If we could be masters of caloric and could at will furnish them with a constant supply shelley's many-sided zeal in the pursuit of truth naturally led him early to invade theology from his Eton days he used to enter into controversies by letter with learned divines medwin declares that he saw one such correspondence in which shelley engaged in argument with a bishop under the assumed name of a woman it must have been in a somewhat similar mood that One Sunday, after we had been to Rowland Hill's chapel, and were dining together in the city, he wrote to him under an assumed name, proposing to preach to his congregation. Certainly Shelley loved mystification scarcely less than he loved truth itself. He was a romanticist as well as a philosopher, and the reading in his childhood of novels like Zufloya the Moor, a work as wild apparently as anything Cyril Turner ever wrote, excited his imagination to impossible flights of adventure few of us have the endurance to study the effects of this ghostly reading in shelley's own work his forgotten novels zastrozzi and st irvine or the rosicrucian but we can see how his life itself borrowed some of the extravagances of fiction many of his recorded adventures are supposed to have been hallucinations like the story of the stranger in a military cloak who seeing him in a post office at pisa said what are you that dashed atheist shelley and felled him to the ground on the other hand shelley's story of his being attacked by a midnight assassin in wales after being disbelieved for three-quarters of a century has in recent years been corroborated in the most unexpected way wild a fiction as his life was in many respects it was a fiction he himself sincerely and innocently believed his imaginative appetite having devoured science by day and sixpenny romances by night still remained unsatisfied and quite probably went on to mix up reality and make-believe past all recognition for its next dish francis thompson with all respect to many critics was right when he noted what a complete playfellow shelley was in his life when he was in london after his expulsion from the university He could throw himself with all his being into childish games like skimming stones on the serpentine, counting with the utmost glee the number of bounds as the flat stones flew skimming over the surface of the water. He found a perfect pleasure in paper boats, and we hear of his making a sail on one occasion out of a ten-pound note, one of those myths, perhaps, which gather round poets it must have been the innocence of pleasure shown in games like these that made him an irresistible companion to so many comparatively prosaic people for the idea that shelley in private life was aloof and unpopular from his childhood up is an entirely false one as medwin points out in referring to his school days he must have had a rather large circle of friends since his parting breakfast at eton cost fifty pounds even at the distance of a century we are still seized by the fascination of that boyish figure with the stag eyes so enthusiastically in pursuit of truth and of dreams of trifles light as air and of the redemption of the human race his figure hogg tells us was slight and fragile and yet his bones were large and strong he was tall but he stooped so much that he seemed of low stature and in medwin's book we even become reconciled to that shrill voice of his which lamb and most other people found so unpleasant medwin gives us nothing in the nature of a portrait of shelley in these heavy and incoherent pages but he gives us invaluable materials for such a portrait in descriptions for instance of how he used to go on with his reading even when he was out walking and would get so absorbed in his studies that he sometimes asked mary have i dined more important as revealing his too exquisite sensitiveness is the account of how medwin saw him after threading the carnival crowd in the lungarno corsos throw himself half fainting into a chair overpowered by the atmosphere of evil passions as he used to say in that sensual and unintellectual crowd some people on reading a passage like this will rush to the conclusion that shelley was a prig but the prig is a man easily wounded by blows to his self-esteem not by the miseries and imperfections of humanity shelley no doubt was more convinced of his own rightness than any other man of the same fine genius in english history he did not indulge in repentance like burns and byron on the other hand he was not in the smallest degree an egolator he had not even such an innocent egoism as thoreau's he was always longing to give himself to the world in the italian days we find him planning an expedition with byron to rescue by main force a man who was in danger of being burnt alive for sacrilege he has often been denounced for his heartless treatment of harriet westbrook and though we may not judge him it is possible that a better man would have behaved differently but it was a mark of his unselfishness at least that he went through the marriage service with both his wives in spite of his principles that he so long endured harriet's sister as the tyrant of his house and that he neglected none of his responsibilities to her in so far as they were consistent with his deserting her for another woman this may seem a bizarre defence but i merely wish to emphasize the fact that shelley behaved far better than ninety-nine men out of a hundred would have done given the same principles and the same circumstances He was a man who never followed the line of least resistance or of self-indulgence, as most men do in their love affairs. He fought a difficult fight all his life in a world that ignored him, except when it was denouncing him as a polluter of society. Whatever mistakes we may consider him to have made, we can hardly fail to admit that he was one of the greatest of English Puritans. End of section 18